Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Eric Loomis. He's an associate professor of history at the University of Rhode Island, and he blogs at Lawyers, Guns, and Money on environmental issues past and present. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Ascent, The New Republic, and he's the author of the books Out of Sight, about corporate outsourcing, and most recently, in A History of America and Ten Strikes. We're happy to have him on today, though, to talk about Empire of Timber, his book about labor unions in the Pacific Northwest forests. The book is available now in paperback from Cambridge University Press. Eric Loomis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into this line of work and became a historian. Um, sure, yeah. So, uh, you know, I uh, grew up uh, in, uh, in a town, a logging town outside of Eugene, Oregon. And, uh, uh, you know, my dad worked in the mills and uh, the timber mills. And, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, he, from a very early age, he made sure that I was not going to follow him into the mills, uh, that I was going to do something else. And he, uh, you know, so I had a lot of uh, encouragement to do well at school and have a different opportunity. And, you know, I don't know. I always was interested in history, and I, I was pretty good at it. And you know, it was the one subject in college that really stuck with me. And so, after a little bit of hesitation, um, both between my bachelor's and master's degree, and then my master's degree and PhD, um, and working for a year uh, outside of history, um, I decided to, in both cases, go on for an advanced degree and uh, became a historian that way. So. So was that the inspiration behind this book then, this personal story? Very much so. How did you come to write it? Yeah, very much so. You know, I mean, I grew up in the 1980s and early 1990s, and this was the era of the timber wars in the Pacific Northwest where uh, you had very intense uh, antagonistic relationships between the timber industry um, and timber workers on one side and environmentalists on another on the other uh, environmentalists that were uh, increasingly not outsiders, but people who were living in Oregon and Washington and had different ideas about what uh, the trees meant and, and, and their role in the economy and their role in, in Northwest society and, and really what they meant. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't go to graduate school intending on writing about uh, the issues that dominated my childhood. But I think like a lot of people, as they're beginning to think about a dissertation, you know, they tend to uh, come back to issues that are meaningful to them in different parts of their lives. And, you know, when I was uh, in uh, graduate school in the early 2000s, uh, I did my PhD work at the University of New Mexico. And, you know, we were reading um, uh, early works uh, that were discussing the connections between uh, the environment and, and labor, uh, such as Richard White's uh, essay, Are You an Environmentalist or Do You Work for a Living?, which referenced the Northwest Timber Wars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that, uh, first of all, nobody was really writing about the relationships between loggers and or timber workers broadly and the, the forest. That, and I knew that the, the rhetoric around that those the timber wars, particularly coming from environmentalists, that these loggers hated the forest. They were raping the forest to use this kind of sexualized, violent language that was part of the yeah. conversation back then. Um, it did not make sense with the reality of the lived experience I had growing up and other people I knew had growing up in these timber towns uh, where in their off hours, you know, these guys would go hunting and fishing and camping and hiking and they genuinely loved the forest. And it's just that they saw their own place in the forest, the economy of the forest, a different way. And so I began the process in my dissertation by trying to look at the roots of all of this, really trying to go back to the late 19th century with 
moderate success, but I threw all that out uh, when it came to the book. Um, and, and really, as time went on, increasingly focused on the timber wars themselves and really tried to work out just what actually was going on in these forests over the 20th century as we got to this period of the 1970s, the 1980s, and 90s, uh, and even up into today, where you do have this significant and very real tension between the labor and environmental movement over the, the use of forests. Yeah. Could you give us a sense for our listeners who might not be familiar about the logging industry in the Pacific Northwest, both past and present? Uh, how big is this? And, you know, because my sense is that it's sort of, it's analogous to coal in Appalachia. Is, is that a fair comparison? Well, it certainly was. Um, you know, in the, in the really beginning in the 1890s, uh, you saw widespread capitalist investment in the Northwest timber industry. I mean, going back to the 1850s, there was a, a timber industry, uh, but this is for relatively small scale compared to what's going to come. 1890s, the arrival of the railroad, you have people like Frederick Warehouser moving operations out of the Midwest and into, into the Northwest. And by the 1910s and 20s, the forests of the Pacific Northwest are by far the most productive uh, in the country in terms of jobs and the amount of wood that is being produced. And really what develops in the Northwest is an entire kind of working class culture around natural resource production. Not just the, the timber industry being a huge, huge, huge part of that, but also ranching in eastern Oregon and Washington, various forms of farming, whether you're talking about fruit or sod farms or whatever, as well as fishing. So you really had a variety of natural resource-based industries, all of which were seeking to transform the natural world into economic production, um, and, and all of which were really central to what I think people don't understand today was really a total backwater in the country all the way up well past World War II, that this was a fairly poor region. It was not very central to the American economy broadly, to, uh, to, Ameri to American culture, really. Um, it, it, was, it, it was always a little bit more diverse economically than, say, West Virginia with coal um, and a little bit more economic opportunity there in other forms. But for much of the, uh, the 20th century, that's not that uh, – th that is relatively – yeah. Um, that really begins to change by the 1960s. But yeah, so, so this, is, this is the premier industry of this region for a very, very, very long time. And the other industries associated with the region have similar kinds of trajectories around natural resource production, you know, the eventuality of scarcity, and the rise of environmentalism challenging. So what is your main argument of this book? What is your real thesis about these timber workers? Sure. So uh, basically, I argue that uh, the timber workers uh, used throughout the 20th century, these timber workers used their unions to promote their own environmental agenda, their own relationship with the forest, their own issues that they had in creating, whether we're talking about uh, safe working conditions, we're talking about personal cleanliness, we're talking about forestry policy. And what I discover is that really through the 20th century, loggers have, and timber workers broadly, have, their, have a variety of environmental positions, each of which we would recognize as part of modern day environmentalism. Uh, and, that the, and that the erasure of these stories uh, from the narrative about the, the Northwest timber industry and its workers really contribute uh, to a misunderstanding about working class uh, relationships with the environment. Uh, that they misinterpret why there was such a, uh, a reaction against environmentalists in the 1980s and 90s and really what that was about um, and have a lot of lessons for us today in an era where, at least in the media, 
uh, the labor movement, environmentalists are often at odds. You know, in many ways, you're talking about the successes and failures of what's sometimes called the Blue-Green Alliance. Uh, And that got me thinking a lot about contemporary politics, especially in an age of climate change. And I know you don't frame this as a book about climate change, but I think that that relationship between workers and the environment is is at the heart of your story. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the issues today are around green energy, right? Uh, That uh, you have the laborers union, especially, um, and some of the other building trades that are uh, protesting against green energy. They are very committed to building oil pipelines. We saw a lot of tensions uh, with the building of the Keystone, uh, or the protests over the Keystone pipeline and the uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the pipeline, North Dakota. And, uh, and, and that, and that's become a big part of the kind of narrative, uh, on the left around the labor movement today. And, and I think that there are legitimate reasons to criticize these unions. Um, but I think we have to, I think there's a, a kind of a broader misunderstanding about, uh, why there is these, these tensions. And, you know, the basic fundamental reason is that there are not other good work options for working class Americans. And that's really been the case since the 1970s, which is when you begin to see really more intensive anti-environmentalism among timber workers themselves. You know, what I show in the book is that especially from the 30s on really into the 70s and 80s, but but with growing tensions by the late 70s, that you have a lot of pro-environmentalism, pro-preservation sentiment among especially uh, the CIO-based timber union, the International Woodworkers of America. Um, And the reason that this gets undermined eventually is that the jobs are disappearing. And the jobs are not disappearing because of environmentalism. That the the timber industry and other industries are able to use that rhetoric effectively. But the reality is is that in a post-industrial economy, the nation has not done a good job of creating good-paying jobs for working-class people, and the environmental movement itself has not offered real opportunities or alternatives to uh, uh, you know to these workers. And so, if you're telling pipeline workers, hey, you know, we're not going to build these. You know, we, we're, we're not we're not going to build these pipelines because of climate change. Well, I agree, we should not be building these pipelines. But we also have to understand that these building trades, they exist to build things. This whole argument that's made about, oh, these are temporary jobs. Well, what do you think building jobs are, right? They are all temporary jobs. So that's not that's an argument that shows a kind of ignorance on other parts of the left about what these workers actually do. And then secondary, we have to actually offer them economic alternatives, right? So if you're talking about climate change today, I mean, one of the lessons I would pull from this is that Uh, If you are going to advocate for a green energy economy, that's not enough. You have to advocate for a green energy union-based economy. If you want to pull workers into this, you have to offer them actually existing good jobs. And environmentalists have really failed to do that, especially as they have become very capitalist-friendly, working closely with green energy companies and CEOs and this sort of thing. And a green energy capitalist may want to save the planet. But they're still a capitalist, and they still want to run their 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 workplace without unions, by and large. This is a big this is a big problem. I mean, this this is a major issue that environmentalists have to contend with if they if they actually want to create alliances with workers. It, it's a really important issue. Mm-hmm. So, if we go back uh, to the International Woodworkers of America in your book, um, would you say is one of the the first unions to really take natural resource planning seriously? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd be interested to know if, first of all, who were they, the rank and file, and how did they compare to the union that had come before them, which was much more radical, the Wobblies? Yeah, so basically, they, I mean, it's different eras, and they form different sort of environmental um, 
uh, different environmental agendas. I mean, the IWW is successfully organizes the timber workers really beginning in 1907, but especially after 1912. And they're able to do so around the fact that these loggers are living in just the worst possible conditions. I mean, horrifically unsafe and unclean conditions uh, that, uh, uh, that, that in their struggles to improve those conditions, we today, they, they certainly wouldn't have that language, but we today would call this an environmental justice movement. And it absolutely was. These are people looking for dignity over their own lives. What the IWW discovers is that a lot of these workers care a whole lot more about the, 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 you know, what's passing for a bathroom, the bedding in, in, the, in the, the bunkhouse, the quality of food than they do about syndicalism. And they shift their organizing tactics to reflect that. And so it becomes a very bread and butter kind of unionism, but one that is based around cleaning up these conditions they successfully unionize these workers. They go on strikes in 1916 and then a bigger one in 1917. They're planning for even a larger one in 1918. And then the government intervenes in World War I, sends in the military to basically get, that, get wood out for airplanes, while at the same time telling timber owners the only way this is going to happen is if you fix these conditions. They send actual soldiers in to help with this logging effort. They force the timber companies to fix those conditions in exchange for basically banning the IWW. And ultimately, this busts the IWW, but it succeeds in reforming these conditions. And it becomes institutionalized through the 1920s into the 1930s so that the, by the time you have the development in 1936 and 37 of a CIO-based union, the International Woodworkers of America. It's a different environmental agenda. Those old questions of clean camps, disease, horrific food, they're, they're mostly right. been solved. Right. So by the 1930s, what you're seeing is a, is, is a union that consists of a number of ex-wobblies. Many ex-wobblies and communists are part of this union. So it's fairly radical. Um, it's communist led for a brief period of time. It's very divisive within the union and eventually it becomes anti-communist, but still. Um, and what they glam onto is a debate existing within the forest service at this time, which is, are we managing our forest correctly? And as the forest service develops after Gifford Pinchot is kicked out in the, you know, in, by the, by the. Uh, teens in the 20s is an increasingly close relationship between the timber industry and the Forest Service that where the Forest Service is already kind of laying the groundwork to effectively serve the timber industry after World War II, which leads to a lot of these environmental problems. And in uh, and so there but there becomes a, a a sort of renegade crew within the Forest Service that's led by people like Bob Marshall, the legendary environmentalist who dies so young, um, and Ferdinand Silcox, who actually becomes head of the Forest Service. And FDR sort of begins to believe in some of these things, too, that, in fact, the Forest Service is not managing forests correctly, that clear-cutting is a terrible way to manage forests. And so in the 30s, really about 38, the workers themselves begin to uh, begin to, to pick up on these ideas. And they basically say that the uh, timber industry is, has, has a whole history of managing forests uh, to simply destroy them and destroy the communities around them. And they look back at Maine and they look at Minnesota and Wisconsin. They look at Arkansas and Louisiana. They look at the history of forestry and they look at what's happening in the Northwest. And they say, these forests are going to go away. These communities are going to disappear unless 
We have government regulation over forestry that limits the kind of forestry that takes place that does not allow for clear cutting. And that creates a community forestry model that creates sustainable communities rather than corporate profit. And so they really begin to articulate what is a conservationist or even proto-environmentalist vision of the forest far earlier than there is a really active environmental community in the Pacific Northwest. Right. So as the environmental movement does pick up, uh, what is the role of the IWA as environmental politics moves into the 1960s and 70s? Yeah, so basically what happens is that uh, between 1945 and 48, the uh, IWA hires an actual professional forester to be its research director. Uh, and this guy is one of these sort of radicals within the timber industry. And he launches a full-on attack of, on timber industry practices um, and wants to ban clear-cutting entirely, go to selective logging, uh, manage forests for community purposes and all of this. And he fails and, and he eventually leaves the IWA. But um, uh, but they managed to go as far as get a bill before Congress that would do this. And, uh, you know, so they have this kind of IWA forestry program that attacks the Forest Service. And after he leaves and the Cold War sets in, it's a little bit less of a high priority, but it's still a piece of the action. Still part of what these people believe. And so as you have real the modern environmentalist movement begin to pop up, the IWA is a part of this. And so you have, uh, for instance, in the you know, the Wilderness Act of 1964 is, of course, this, this incredibly important law that creates a modern wilderness movement. Well, as the acts that are moving toward this beginning in about 1958 and then you know, 1960 and 62 are uh, beginning to ramp up, leading to that, who is testifying in favor of, the, uh, of, of creating a wilderness bill that would actually take timber out of production? It's the head of the IWA, the president, a guy named Al Hartung. And he's and basically his argument is that, look, we're gonna get better contracts. We're part of this, you know, we're part of a of a sustainable industry or semi-sustainable industry now. The world is gonna get better for working class people. And as it does, and as our wages go up and our working hours go down, our members need somewhere to recreate, to go hiking, to go hunting, to go fishing. And it's worth it to us to lose a little bit of that forest land in order to preserve this land for future generations. So they're right there at the very beginning of this. And, they, and they, they're pretty good allies on a lot of these issues through the 1960s, well into the 1970s, and even to some extent into the 1980s. You know, you have a chapter on what you call countercultural forest workers. Um, could you talk a little bit about about their relationships to the labor movement. Um, at one point, you were talking about what they call hodads. Right, and so you know, I have this one chapter in the in the uh, uh, in the book uh, that looks at a different kind of forest worker. Uh, you know, the the, the 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 timber the timber unions themselves uh, by the really by the fifties and sixties were pretty much limited to the timber mills um, for a variety of reasons we can get into if you want to, but it, it's a lot of detail. Um, and there are different, there are different kind of forest workers out there. And, uh, one of them are reforestation workers, uh, people who are actually planting, replanting the forests after they're cut. Of course, in, in a clear cutting scenario, because that old IWA met, you know, opposition to clear cutting had, had failed basically. So they, you have widespread clear cuts going on by the 1950s and they begin to replant those forests. But replanting those forests is the worst possible labor. I mean, it's very brutal. It's very low skill and very difficult. And so a lot of the people that are doing it are immigrants or the poorest of people. They're homeless people sometimes. The quality of work is very low. 
Um, but as the counterculture develops, and of course the Northwest is a real center of the counterculture, especially Oregon, uh, you have uh, these countercultural back-to-land type people who are beginning to think about ways uh, that they can uh, uh, think about ways that they, they can make a living off the land and kind of step out of a capitalist rat race and live some kind of alternative lifestyle. And the way that they do this, way that some do it, is begin to organize into a collective called Hodads. Uh, and there are other uh, versions of this that pop up as well throughout the region, but the Hodads are by far the most successful and long-lasting. Uh, uh, made up of these crews of mostly young people that get contracts to reforest this land. Um, and they, so they're up, they're living in, you know, these, these temporary camps in the middle of the forest, um, often, you know, in the winter where it's very rainy or snowy and very difficult conditions, but this is the kind of life that they're wanting to live. Um, and they mostly just want to be left alone. The problem is though, is that you also have an industrial forest landscape that is developed by that time. And that means a lot of chemicals. And so you have a lot of spraying of pesticides and herbicides. Well, these workers start getting sick. But unlike these immigrants or homeless people that are taking these jobs for a short period of time, you know, these are fairly middle class white college kids and they have access to power. And so they begin to organize against this chemical usage in the forest because it's they themselves who are getting sick. And uh, so they begin to be a major pain in the side of the timber industry and the forest agencies, uh, both on the state and federal level, uh, in, in, in order to tr clean up these forests out of chemicals. And they become a major player, particularly in the late 70s and early 1980s, uh, uh, on these issues of chemicals in the forest. So it's another way, you know, hodads aren't a union. They, they very briefly think about and talk about joining the IWA because the IWA had this kind of, you know, willingness to engage with the counterculture, had this leftist past. There are some tentative beginnings, but it's a little too institutional for these, you know, 19-year-old uh, hippies, basically. They're joining this organization, so it doesn't happen. But nonetheless, it's another way that these timber workers organize collectively to control their own environment. In this case, uh, in this case, protecting themselves from chemicals, which at the very same time in the 70s, the IWA has really rejuvenated its own environmental program around this very issue of chemical exposure, this time in the plywood mills, which are just filled with chemicals and nobody even knows what they are and what they do to people. So how would you characterize that relationship then between these countercultural workers and and labor, you know, industrial timber workers. Um, were they cooperative at all with one another in the beginning? Well, I wouldn't overstate the level of cooperation. I mean, they were kind of operating on different fronts, really. I mean, they're in different parts of the timber industry, and they don't really interact all that often. But, but there was a shared sense of leftist politics among leaders of the Hodaz and the leaders of the IWA. And so they saw room to cooperate. The IWA was certainly interested in the potential of breaking into the reforestation industry. They had long been interested in that, but they were such difficult workers to organize because they're just not in the jobs for very long. And they're in very remote places with mostly not a lot of social, uh, uh, not a lot of social capital. So they're difficult workers to organize. And so there was certainly a shared interest there uh, and a shared belief that the timber industry was not really... Uh, always operating uh, with workers' best interests in mind or with the best interests of a sustainable environment, which both are with both groups, although very different, with different cultures and different kind of members, are all interested in because they, they, they both have longstanding and daily relationships with the forest. So this all gears up in the book uh, to the ancient forest campaigns. 
which you say you remember when you were growing up. So what were the ancient forest campaigns like the Spotted Owl Crisis and how it shakes out the relationship between labor and environmentalists? And were there any long-term and, and national consequences of this? Sure. So, you know, the, 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 real, the real key date uh, in the development of the war between, uh, between the labor movement and the environmental movement is 1973. And that has nothing to do with environmentalists or the labor movement per se. It's the, dec- it's, it's the beginning of the recession, the end of the post-war boom. Um, and all of the big structural changes that are beginning to happen to the economy after this, right? So you have, you know, in the seventies, wages stagnate, you have, you have automation gains that are laying off a lot of people in the timber industry. Um, and, and in many other fields in the United States, uh, you have, you have, uh, uh, mills and factories closing in the United States and opening overseas, taking more industrial jobs away. That's happening in the Northwest as well. And you have a very particular Northwest issue, which is that beginning in 1962, you have a program of the timber industry realizing that it's more profitable to ship, to cut down trees, ship them to Japan without processing and let the Japanese do the processing uh, into plywood and other, other goods, especially for the Asian markets than it is to have American workers do that. And so you begin to see the widespread sh- shipping of r- what they call raw logs and processed logs over to Japan and you have big layoffs in the timber industry that are happening anyway. None of this has anything to do with environmentalism. So if you look at employment numbers as well as union membership numbers in between the mid 60s and into the 70s, they're declining relatively significantly. And this is repeated in steel, in auto, in all sorts of areas. Nothing to do with environmentalism. However, at the at the same time, and and, and I should say, it makes workers very scared. And the unions maybe didn't do a good enough job of really educating their members as to exactly why this was happening and and whatever. But but nonetheless, uh, by the time environmentalism is becoming, and particularly preservationism and the demand for, for more wilderness areas, and really the saving of the last old growth forest in the Northwest, particularly low elevation uh, old growth forest, which is almost gone by the 1970s, uh, uh, you, you know, it's happening at the same time that you have these massive structural economic dislocations going on. And that's really the breaking point. The first, the first big timber war itself really develops right around 1973 in Northern California with the demand to expand Redwood National Park. That national park's created in 1968 with very little uh, with very little opposition. But it's a very small park, and there is a, a clear need to expand it. And so, uh, uh, and that succeeds in 1978. But Carter signs the bill, um, and it's really in 1975-76 as these workers realize they don't really have anywhere to go that they begin uh, to 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 protest this um, and talk about how it's going to take away all of these jobs. And that begins to reflect itself in other big protests around the region, especially over the protection of the Spotted Owl, uh, which is the, really the dominant issue in the 1980s and early 1990s. But two, two points about this that I think are really critical, right? And so again, again, you do see this very overheated language. The IWA gets new leadership in 1987 that rejects the previous version of union environmentalism. The other union in the timber industry, the carpenters, are always pretty anti-environmental. Um, and so, you know, that stereotype about workers opposing environmentalists really becomes true, and environmentalists are often indifferent to workers' fates. But two quick points here. First, 
is that in 1978, when you had uh, Redwood National Park be expanded, uh, there was a program that was added to the bill uh, that actually gave full benefits for quite a long time, almost full wages and benefits to any worker who was laid off because of Redwood National Park expansion. And so this was, it was a short-lived program at Reagan Destroys in, in 1981. But this was a moment where we could have created a new kind of welfare program in the United States that if a worker was laid off from their job because of environmental protection, they weren't just sort of let go to, to try to find their way in a new economy with some lame job training programs <laughs> and things like this. But rather, there was the alternative of actually providing real full benefits for a lengthy amount of time to help those workers actually create a bridge to whatever they were going to do in the future. And if that had been expanded upon, we're talking about a very different kind of conversation today. But that is that it lasts for a few years. There are some problems with the program, but, you know, there's going to be problems with any program. Reagan destroys it, and it really gets forgotten about. It's called the Redwood Employee Protection Program, and this is really a very little-known moment in American history that's worth revisiting. And the second point to make is that when the Spotted Owl uh, protection gets finalized under, you know, under after uh, you know the Clinton, uh, you know, the, the Clinton Forest Summit uh, in 1993, uh, where the final decisions are made, it gets implemented in 94, 95. The actual job losses from Spotted Owl protection are almost none, um, and that's the and, the and the main reason is that yes, there are a few mills relying on old growth timber that that were restricted uh, from cutting because of Spotted Owl protection. But the reality is that between the already logged off, the fact they'd already logged off most of the, these trees, plus the fact that the job losses were mostly from non-environmental related uh, issues such as automation and export policy and, and overcutting, that in fact it made almost no difference in total job numbers. So all of the claims of that spotted out protection were going to destroy the timber industry were proven to be mostly false. But because of the cultural differences and the fears of workers as their jobs are already disappearing and they face no alternative, this becomes the narrative that environmentalists are looking to destroy our jobs. And that is a narrative that continues to exist today nationally. And, and I think there's no question that what happened in the timber industry in the 80s and 90s still very much uh, influences that narrative today, even though, again, it's usually not true. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you wrote this book. You had a personal connection to the topic. One of the things I was wondering, um, is there anything that, that surprised you when you were working on it? Well, I, I guess I, I, you know, I didn't go into it thinking there would be this many connections between the timber, between timber workers and actual environmental activism. Um, you know, I, I certainly expected to find timber workers having relationships with the environment in various ways through recreation or whatever else. But I, I didn't go into it until I really started researching you know, I didn't discover this much actual political activism. And I think that the fact that so much political activism over what anybody really, any environmentalist would call some form of active environmentalism, often very progressive for the time period, uh, demonstrates that there are histories of working class environmentalism that are much more complicated uh, than is usually, uh, usually known. Um, and that there are probably a lot more of these kind of histories out there uh, that could be explored. Uh, and that, and that, you know, th that there is no inherent tensions between work and environmentalism, so long as we accept that there is going to be some kind of work in the forest, whatever that might look like. Um, so long as we accept that there is a place in the forest for some kind of work, there's no inherent 
reasons why there should be tensions. The, the reason there are tensions are these broader structures about us not taking care of our working class citizens. Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask you, too, about your newest book, A History of America and Ten Strikes. As a labor historian, to write across the entire history of the United States and to put the full picture into view for yourself, and this is kind of a similar question, what did you learn once you laid it all out in front of you like that? Um, did anything come in and out of the picture, maybe more than you or less than you expected? Yeah, I think two things. Uh, a big, big, the two big takeaways from that book, because I think that you know a lot of people in this country, especially today, are demanding a more militant labor movement and uh, uh, you know disappointed in the history of the labor movement and its trajectories, and are also wondering you know why is America not more radical? And there are really two big takeaways from our broader labor history. One is that. Uh, is that really the most important uh, determining factor of whether a strike or a labor action or a union, however constructed, is successful, is whether the federal government can be neutralized off its quite frequent position of being an open ally of employers. Um, and that happened between the New Deal and the 1970s, but since then that has been reversed. And once again, the government is openly working with uh, employers to crush labor unions. And that you know, for all the militancy we might want and all the kind of labor movement, democracy within the labor movement and anything else that people want to use to criticize the labor movement and perhaps legitimately, the fundamental issue more than anything else is the politics. You, you, the labor movement has to have a politics that actually has power behind it. Otherwise, there's very little there's very little historical uh, precedent that it's going to defeat a government employer alliance. So that I think that that the politics are really important. And then the second thing is that what the, the, the single biggest issue in which workers divide themselves in American history is when white workers choose their white identity over their class identity. People often ask, why do these workers, when they vote Republican, why do these workers vote against their interests? They're not voting against their interests. They're voting against their economic interests. But that does not mean in their minds they don't have racial interests. It doesn't mean in their minds they might like unions, but to them, you know, the, the, the idea of an abortion is the greatest crime in human history. And so they're going to vote for right-wing anti-union politicians because of this. And, uh, and, and these, you know, the, we're all made up of a variety of interests. And unfortunately, at least from my perspective, in the United States, uh, white workers have traditionally not placed their class interests that high in the list of interests that they have. They have united with employers uh, to discriminate against black workers. And, and, and I think that the, the racism uh, of America that is too often, even, you know, even before the Trump administration uh, was, was, was always there, but not talked about as such as often as it needed to be, is a huge, huge problem. And uh, we have to fight racism along with fighting for class politics. So, so those would be the two biggest takeaways from the book, I, I would argue. Right, right. So Eric, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, but before we go, I wanted to ask you what you're working on next. Well, I got some stuff that uh, I'm not really ready to talk about publicly, but the, the, the main the main thing that I've been researching um, is to build on Empire of Timber uh, and to write a broad to write a broad based history of the Pacific Northwest uh, since about 1955 1960, uh, really talking about regional identity and talking about how the, the Northwest, uh, which in the 50s and early 60s was this white working class based economy uh, really based on, on natural resources with a moderate political culture um, uh, and one that was again kind of a backwater uh, kind of a, of, 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 of a 
broader culture that, that really is about the life of the logger. Think Ken Kesey, for instance, as your kind of vision of the Northwest uh, and, you know, sometimes a great notion um, uh, in, in the 1960s and, and how that changes uh, between now and the present where a new people move in and the environment begins to mean something else. The nor- people move to the Northwest for very particular reasons to play in nature instead of to work in nature. Uh, the natural resource industries become under attack. A lot of these new uh, residents who come from, you know, who come as middle-class kids and come out for environmental reasons uh, are wealthy. So Portland and Seattle become booming cities, yet 30 to 40 miles away, you have logging towns and farming towns that are basically falling apart like they are in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. Um, and so, and, and the regional identity changes. And so representations of the Northwest and culture transform too. So you move from your Ken Kesey's of the world and really the grunge music movement that comes out of these terrible logging towns that are really economically depressed. You know, Kirk Cobain's from Aberdeen, you know, they come from Montesano and they come from these other pretty rough towns. And then, you know, really in the mid nineties, the, the overwhelming dominance of the Pacific Northwest and popular culture is to show Frazier, even though that never actually shoots outside. Frazier is a very different vision of the Pacific Northwest, uh, a yuppie vision of the Pacific Northwest. And then this kind of leads to Portlandia, uh, which is a very difficult show for me to watch, uh, you know, to, because it's such a different Portland than the one that I grew up with, this sort of twee cute, uh, you know, uh, alternative Portland that, uh, you know, is, is a, a place that my father and mother would not recognize, even though I was born there. Um, and, uh, and, and to kind of track these changes in, in the politics, in rural protest, in the cities, uh, in the economy, and to talk about the broader transformation of the United States through a region that has moved from backwater to really cultural center. Yeah, that's such a great project, thinking about it as a cultural center. You know, I asked you about the countercultural forest workers you talk about in the book, in part because when I was a teenager living in Minneapolis, our only reference point for uh, yeah. uh, the Pacific Northwest was Ken Kesey and, and Kurt Cobain. Uh, so it'd be interesting to put those in in conversation yeah it's kind of a it's it's, it's kind of a gigantic project so it's, it's a little bit nuts to be doing this but we'll, we'll see we'll see what comes of it so that's great yeah so eric loomis thank you so much for joining us and uh, we hope hey, to have you back again you soon bet. thank you for having me take care you bet <laughs>